That Force Radio. That Force Radio is rated M for mature. Or should that be immature? Hey guys, Dustin Wint. Hey, this is Scott Snyder. This is Paul Dini. And you're listening to Bat Force Radio. And you're listening to Bat Force Radio. You're listening to Bat Force Radio. This is Kevin Conroy, the voice of Batman. And you're listening to Bat Force Radio, so stay tuned. So welcome back to Bat Force Radio, the DC Batman podcast with no limits. We have a spectacular Halloween Spooktaculars episode. I think this is going to be the third annual Halloween Indeed. Spooktacular, and it's very special. We're going to go around the roundtable for first. We're going to have uh, uh, Bat Force. Wow, I messed up. I'm going to edit that part out. <laughs> please, please don't. Please don't. You're right. I, d- I did keep it in last time. I screwed up or I forget who did. But I was like, no, I'm keeping it. And I kept it, so I got to do it this time. Uh, we got uh, Grandpa Batman in Dallas. Howdy. We got uh, Robin D. Cross in Texas. No, we don't. Jesus. <laughs> Jesus. This is wow. Robin D. Man, Cross favorite. in Canada. This intro is horrific. Hey. <laughs> we got the Trunkler in Chicago. How's it going? I'm Bat Force Tom in California. In Texas. Okay. In Texas. <laughs> Anyways, now that we got that out of the way. Um, Texas Stranger. <laughs> we have a fantastic Halloween special because we have for the third time, for the third year in a row, one of our favorite artists of all time, one of the greatest figures in comics. Uh, this man should probably be put in a glass case and put in a museum right now. Um, but, you know, he's still putting out great work, so we're going to let him do that. But uh, you know him from Swamp Thing, Sandman, Batman, Aliens, Dead Man, Sleepy Hollow, Frankenstein, the list goes on. Uh, Mr. Kelly Jones for the third time on Halloween. Thank Woo! you. Thank you. <laughs> that, so, that was pretty good. I might check that guy out. <laughs> oh, yeah. Not bad, yeah, right? He, so he, He's good. Kelly, we... um. We're so happy to have you again for the third time. This is the third time we've had you for Halloween. It's turning into a tradition. It's a good um, tradition. Right? Yeah. Absolutely. It's the best way, I think, to get into the spirit, um, especially because things are so different right now. This is a great way of, uh, and, you know, I was thinking about it too. We don't have New York Comic Con this year. Yeah. So, um, you know, it's difficult for creators and everybody to kind of get out there like they used to talk about what stuff's coming out, talk about, you know, what's going on with them. So this is kind of what we are, you know, reduced to, but it's great because it's a more personal kind of approach to it. So we love it. But um, so we have two things that we kind of wanted to do. It's Halloween time. So we really want to get into that kind of stuff. Um, you also have some amazing things that have res- recently come out. I think we talked to you back in June. Yeah. Um, but you have a couple of projects that um, are in the works and also out. Um, so we'll talk about that. And then we also were thinking, you know, we love you so much. You're such a, a hero to us. You're such a legend of the industry. Um, we need to make sure that there is a Kelly Jones for every generation to come. Yes. And I think the best, the best way we can do that is if we create uh, the, 
the history, the, the recipe for what created Kelly Jones, what you were into as far as spooky horror since a kid, since you were a kid up until now. So that way can people can take this record and recreate it and we can continue to clone Kelly Jones moving sure, forward. Sure. We can do so. the cloning. I mean, <laughs> <Yeah>. the cloning. <laughs> um, so first, you know, how's everything going with you? I know uh, it's the first Halloween that we've had where this is strange times, but how's everything going? Uh, pretty good, actually. I mean, uh, like anything, it, 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 you get used to things, you know? Uh, and, um, and because I think a lot of us in who not just make them or comics or read comics or, or into these kind of things, um, it helped me delve back into my collections a little bit, uh, kind of reinvigorate a lot of stuff, you know? Whether it be, uh, I was able to reread a lot of my collections, whether they be comics, books, uh, and enjoy it. Mm -hmm. uh, I think the problem with collecting a lot is that you tend to put things in bins and forget about it or tend to, you know. So I was able to take a lot of stuff out, reshelve it, uh, kind of reconnect with those things that made me want to be in this to begin with or, or continue to be in this. Um, so that part was kind of fun. I'll be honest. There was some good days reading uh, whole runs of Tales of Suspense with Cap or something, you know, um, mm -hmm. rereading all my Mike Plug comics. Uh, finding which, you know, surprisingly, oh, I'm missing one here or there and uh, go hunting it down. It was kind of fun to do a lot of those things again. Yeah, it's great. And uh, it's, I, I think that uh, on your, you're super active on your Facebook. Um, so if anybody wants to know what you're up to, what you're doing, what you're working on, I suggest that you very much check out Kelly Jones's Facebook page. And I saw that one of the things that you did to kind of go back and get into the spirit of things, you just had a, a conversation with Graham Nolan Yep. about uh, one of your favorite films and uh, its influence on you. That That is awesome. People can check that out right now. It's still up there on your page. Yeah. Um, talk a little bit about that. So first of all, isn't it kind of funny? Graham Nolan pretty much has turned into Bane, it looks like. <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. Uh, uh, yeah, it's funny. Um, uh, Graham, Graham has really bulked up pretty good, man. Like um, crazy. He's, a, he's massive. Yeah. So, uh, and he, he did it the old fashioned way, man, working out and that whole thing, but mm -hmm. he still kicks back with the cigar and a glass of whiskey. So he's, he's not completely turned to the dark side. <laughs> yeah. It's a good balance, I think for sure. Yeah. Um, so you got, you know, you're getting into the spirit of thing. I see that you have an amazing background for those who won't be able to see, um, you got your Dracula on your right and then you got your Frankenstein on your left. Um, is this, is this year round? <laughs> your setup or is that just uh, you know what oddly enough yes <laughs> in fact, all that stuff. i just uh in fact i positioned there thinking i should be, you know stupid me i was thinking well maybe i should get those out of the way and then i forgot what are we talking about right, right. so um no but uh frank here was a stand-up at uh, the now long gone lamented tower books and records and that kind of stuff oh wow and uh they had him there when they were selling first very first 20 some odd years ago dvds of the classic monsters and they just had him there and i said if you're not gonna what are you doing with this and pretty much uh you know my, my brother was working there and he says well we chuck them but if you want it take it and wow. i wow absolutely Very well cool. it's just you know uh much more of a headache for them there you know that's just work for them right. and drac here was just a many years ago just going through i think the early 90s going i forget what store uh and they had these 
blow up, you know, these big, uh, you lit it up for drag, uh, for Halloween. And mm -hmm. uh, for me, that's all year round. So I had to have that. And it's just, these things just have clung to me as I've moved, you know? Yeah. Um, I love it. I can't, yeah. I, can't, I mean, uh, I do feel like, a, you know, you become, when you're an adult and you're into this, it's all of a sudden it's all the things you wanted at 12, you have the money to have now and no one to tell you no. Exactly. Yeah. And then it, you got it's nice to know, it's nice to know that Kelly Jones is not among those pe people who the day after Halloween switches to the Christmas decorations. <laughs> no, and actually for Christmas, uh, I started years ago. Uh, the thing we do, we count down with um, this wonderful series of, of horror stories they do in, uh, uh, BBC did in, in Britain. And they're called Ghost Stories for Christmas. And uh, you can find them on YouTube. Um, they're absolutely stunning. They're fabulous. And um, those we, we will count down. Uh, they're, they're adapted for in large part from the uh, stories of M.R. James. Um, so those are terrific. And in England, they have a tradition on Christmas Eve, they run these things, you know? And uh, I guess it's an old British tradition of horror stories on Christmas Eve. And famously, uh, uh, though they remade it, the original Woman in Black uh, was, I think 1989, they put that out. And it's still, I think all horror, any, anything that's been on television or anything that's been in the theater, it's hands down the scariest thing I have ever seen. And I was shocked that they <laughs> did this on Christmas Eve um, <laughs> in England, but I have not been as truly terrified as when I saw this. I mean, Damn. in that genuine sense of terror, which is what a horror film is supposed to do rather than just enjoy them for their, schlocky qualities or their aesthetic or whatever this was genuine terror and it has the power even when you've seen it it still <laughs> resonates that power i would recommend anyone who's not seen it you're lucky and you put it on <laughs> at night and you don't you turn off everything and you just watch this in the dark and it has an incredible power enough to where bernie wrightson had told me nothing scared him anymore and wow. it it bothered him that Damn. He couldn't find things that scared him. And I said, you know, there's this thing. Have you seen this? And he hadn't. So I hunted down a copy. Luckily, it's been reissued recently uh, in Britain. But for a long time, you couldn't find it. And they did a remake uh, some years ago. It's not even, this, it's not it. Um, yeah, and I remember the remake. I think I, that had um, the, the kid from Harry Potter in it or something, right? Yeah, and, and it wasn't, I w it was extremely disappointing to me because I, but then again, it had a lot to overcome if you'd seen the television film. And it was written by Nigel, ne or adapted by Nigel Neal. So it has a high pedigree. Mm -hmm. And um, anyway, uh, he got back to me, Wrightson got back to me and he said, Jesus, he had never that had gotten to him too. It, it was that powerful. Steve Niles, uh, the same thing. I sent him a copy. Wow. And he said the th same thing. This man, it really freaked him out. And it is that good. And and again, Christmas Eve, man, that's what they do there. And I'll give them their, I guess that's where <laughs> Scrooge came from that tradition. Mm. 
you know, uh, that's that's where they started doing it. But that's what we do when it goes to Christmas time. We just switch from <laughs> one gear to another. And for someone like you and Bernie to say that, damn, um, it must be. Uh... Check it out if you can. If you can find a copy of it, put it in your machine. If you can't, I I don't know if YouTube. You know, they might have pulled it from YouTube, but it is that. It, I cannot recommend it higher. And Ooh. it's it's perfect. Perfect. When did you first see it? I saw it because my wife, before we met, had seen it about a year. Uh, she saw it in 1989. We met about a year later. And then uh, she'd never mentioned it, but we were in a uh, old video store and they had a copy of it on DVD for say, I guess they had just recently put it out. And she had said, I looked at it and I was interested only because it said Nigel Neal. I didn't know what it was about. I'd never heard of it. And she just said, I'm not going to say anything, but that scared me so bad when I saw it. Because they ran it on PBS in, in 90 or 89 or 90, I can't remember. Uh, roughly around the same time that it aired in Britain. And she goes, I, I, that really upset me. That was a terrifying, terrifying experience. Eh, you know, she's a girl, right? So you go, how, what is, so I get it. And I'm, I'm all ready to tell her this isn't horror, you know, or this isn't scary, but it's Nigel Neal. And I've never, very rarely, maybe as a kid, but as an adult, I never had the hair go up on my arm. I wow. never have had that, that incredible, and I, I know I'm talking it up. I'm still not talking it up high enough. Wow. It's unbelievably well done. So as an but that's adult- Christmas in my house. Okay. Mm-hmm. Even as an adult during Christmas. Oh yeah, I um, I had a friend of mine. Uh, we both have kids, and they have friends, and they all poo-poo everything, and nothing scary, and you da 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 da. And I said, okay, and I didn't tell them. I said, hey, you know, come over. We're gonna watch this. It's got late, and they were all being talking tough and everything. And I've never heard as many kids scream. Wow! Literally scream and get dead silent. And and long before you know you get to all the things that horror films do, they were totally engrossed into this thing. And it has a power, you know. But a good ghost story always does. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Do you remember what was the first thing that really terrified you as a kid? What was like the first memory of you being really petrified? Uh like uh, like a horror thing or just in general? Maybe just in general. Like just, okay, the, yeah, first first, thing, yeah. the first thing of sheer absolute terror where, where I ran into the house and would not go out and no one could tell me otherwise was I swore. I came in, I heard this terrible buzzing and I went in and told my, my everyone in the house that there was a bee that was this big, like this huge bee, like this. Wow. And it was zooming around me and it had a huge stinger. And I was petrified and they were going, bees are like this, what do you, you know? Well, what had happened was I didn't know cause I, I you know, it's a little, little kid, but it was a hummingbird. <laughs> and, and it was, it was, you know, buzzing around really fast and probably defending a nest. I don't know. I'm a little kid. It was by this uh, plant which had red flowers. So maybe it was eating, but man, all I saw was this giant, what I thought was a mm-hmm. stinger. It was zipping around me and it made that drone mm-hmm. like a bee. Mm-hmm. And, uh, I would not go outside, you know, wow. just, that was the end of going outside Yeah. until finally 
one of my parents or somebody had figured out, I think he's talking about a hummingbird. <laughs> so they took me out to where it was, you know, and after a while, yes, one of them popped up or something. They said, no, it's a bird. It, and, and it took me a long time to accept that it wasn't, that it was not a bug and, and it was a bird because it didn't look like the other birds, you know? Yeah. It went backwards. It stood still in the air. You know, that kind of, that, that's freaky. That even as right. a kid, you have a perception of the world as it should be. Yeah. It was not part of that. So that was what I remember as being absolutely terrifying. What's, what's funny is that it's, it's a very real thing. It was a hummingbird. So it was very real. So what you're seeing is real. It's not like yeah. something that you imagined. Well, I so think that's, that's exactly what it is. It's in the real world. It isn't mm -hmm. a nightmare. It isn't something on TV. It was a physical thing. And that's what I do remember that. And mm -hmm. unbelievable because the people I trusted were telling me, you know, uh, first they didn't believe me and then, oh, okay, but it's not, that's not a big deal. You don't have to worry about those. And I go, right. how do you not worry about a bee with a stinger like that? <laughs> yeah. um, but then when they showed it to me and explained it to me, I still stayed away from hummingbirds for a long time. That's all I, I'll say. I just, uh, <laughs> one of those things. Um, that, yeah. That's what, that's so funny. Like everyone has their, you know, little phobias and, and, you know, clicks for me. Um, I can't, I am deathly scared and freaked out by insects. Yeah. And it all goes back to, it's almost like PTSD. I remember as a small, small kid watching some National Geographic thing or whatever. And on the screen, it showed a extreme close-up of an insect in its mouth eating something. Yeah. That freaked me out so bad. So now when I see a bug, I'm just, ah. And it's stupid, right? It's <laughs> no. stupid. I know this bug can't kill me. I can't, it can't hurt me. No. But it, I have that flashback, kind of like what you do with the hummingbird. Yeah. yeah. Um, in your honor, today I wore the only horror shirt that I own, which is this Nosferatu shirt. Hey! Oh. hey. That's a good so, one. <laughs> so this Saturday, which is Halloween, I found a DVD copy of the 1922 Nosferatu. Yeah, that's great. Shrek. So it's I want to ask your opinion of that. I absolutely love that film. And, and probably because it retains all of the power of the filmmaker and which shows that things don't age things. People will say things are dated or of their time. And that's true for some stuff. But when you deal with a creator that that is that eccentric, that unique, that clear, uh, I don't care if it's almost, it, it, that film's 98 years ago. Um, it's as if it just was released to me. Um, wow, 98 years. Wow. Yeah. wow. So you're seeing, you're seeing everybody, wow. everything involved has been erased by time, but the power of that idea, the power of that vision, the power of that creative mind. So when you see it, it is, it is, a, it is a pretty horrific film. I mean, by any measure, any standard, it still works. And just because this is Bat Force Radio, the little tie-in is that the actor's name is Max Schreck. Right. Who is the villain in Batman Returns. Well, well the name's very similar. But. Obviously, they, that's what they were looking yeah. at it. I mean, <laughs> yeah. it's, it's the definition. I think I was telling Graham about uh, the Hammer film Dracula, Prince of Gar Darkness, that I enjoyed it so much because it was truly gothic, not gothic shtick, not girls with dark eyes and, and this, this stuff. Gothic meaning... Uh, good will win, but at a very high price. 
And even yeah, that's a great yeah, movie. And and uh, that's what that's what Nosferatu is. Uh, it's yeah. a great take on Dracula because they couldn't get the rights. Uh, it's an inspired vision of a vampire. Um, and in fact, wonderfully swiped and done for Salem's Lot in 1979, that version, which is one of the finest vampire things ever. Um, and it's, it's something that you don't want near you. It's not a suave vampire comes in and yeah. is magnetic. It's <laughs> like, it's like a leech with fangs. And, wow. um, yeah. And so whenever I see that, uh, I tend to turn the, the, whatever the music score is, I turn it down and turn on my own music. The music I think is pretty cool. I don't score it at all. I just turn on a record or something I like. Um, and I go from there. Uh, I tend to put on uh, the last three movements of Holst the Planets or uh, something like that. Just creepy classical music works best. That's great. Well, you like collectibles. <clears throat> Were you aware that they made a Nosferatu action figure? I was about to tell you, Gramps. Yeah, uh, it's it's fabulous. Yes. Yeah, um, yeah. Cool. It, it's and and you know I tend to as as you get older you realize am I a hoarder or am I a collector? <laughs> Are you a whore hoarder? Yes. Yes. Uh, well, look, I mean, any of you guys moved? How hard is that? Oh, my God. I don't even want to talk <laughs> okay, about it. Okay, everybody else moves. It's a bed, a couch, an end table. They're in the other house in two hours, right? Mm -hmm. Set up and ready to go by the end of the day. For us, it's it's planning D-Day, you know? Oh, yeah. <laughs> uh, it's, and... it's boxing and boxing and boxing and boxing. And uh, movers can tell you they'll have you out of there in a couple hours, and it takes them three days. Um <laughs> It, no, it's it is it is a nightmare thing, and so I went through and went. Okay, what is it? Especially these last months, where every where everyone you pretty much stay home, and you begin to realize uh, uh, how much stuff you you really needed, and how much stuff was impulse buy. You know? No. Oh yeah. <laughs> well, the uh, the last time I moved, um, I had family. I got a U-Haul. My family, you know, brothers, sisters yeah. helped, and um, you know, my brother went to go grab a long box of comics, and my you know, my uh, nephew grabbed a box of, uh, you know, action figures I had um, boxed up. I said, whoa, 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 whoa. Put that stuff down. Yeah. I'll put it in my car. Yes. I don't want to put it in the U-Haul. You know, if, if it breaks, I can blame myself. Yeah. But, so um, I had um, lots of trips back and forth in sure. my uh, Mitsubishi Lancer, four-door. <laughs> you know, I, I, yeah. I, moved, I moved into the house I am now almost 20 years ago. And... And there's still a couple boxes I have not opened yet from that movie. <laughs> wow. So, uh, so I don't know what's in there. I mean, it's, it's, it's almost to the point. And it's not like you go and scoop big chunks of it up. It's like it just accrues. It's like what washes up on the shore, you know? <laughs> and, yep. and after a while, after a while, you go, why, do, why did I have this? Why did I get mm -hmm. this? Um, uh, <laughs> but then there's a lot of great stuff, too. Or, or you find the horror can be, it's a good thing, I guess that you found some little odd thing you liked a book or a fig something and years go by and you find out the damn thing's worth a fortune now and something mm -hmm. you just got for fun turned into something now you have to worry about oh. you know? and yeah. then the stuff owns you right yeah it's uh, it's funny I, I i get ptsd just hearing the word moving 
Um, yeah. <laughs> we're, we're not even moving. We're just getting, uh, we're getting like wood paneling put in on the floor. We're ripping out the carpets and in, in, in this room right here. Yeah. And uh, I just get anxiety because I literally have to box everything up and just to move it into another room. Right. To do the floor and bring it back in. And like, just like you're saying, like you're finding things that my wife is so mad because I have another room. So the office has all these collectibles and things in it. My man, my bat cave has the bat cave stuff. And so she's like, you have to get everything out of that closet because we're going to redo the carpet. So you got to get everything out of the closet. And I want it in the carport. And I go, all right. So I'm taking things out. And I'm like, Oh my God, look at this toy. Oh my God, look at this figure. And my son's <laughs> right there. So I'm like, Oh, here, you can have this. And she's like, that's not what we're supposed to be doing. You you're, doing you're taking it from his, yeah. from your room and you're putting it into his room. Like, that's not the point. No, the problem is you start going through the stuff. Yeah. Right. Uh, <laughs> I got lucky in that uh, I have all these comics from 60s and 70s, early 80s when I was actively collecting comics and all these marvels and stuff. You know, when you're a kid, you just go to the flea market. There weren't a lot of comic book stores, a few, but I'd go to flea markets and uh, you'd see someone in the newspaper getting rid of stuff and you just go buy these things. Yeah. Old bookstores would do it. And I'd read them because you'd, you there was no way to follow some of the stories that I was reading would refer to these things from 1968 or something. So you'd find them and, and I built a pretty good collection of it, but it was a reading collection for me, just reading. And I, you know, read them, box them, put them away, forget about it. And these boxes have been unopened probably since the early eighties. You know, I did, it just follow me around. And uh, my wife started in organizing through this whole thing that's going on she started saying well what do you have what what do you have i said i i i know i read <laughs> these runs i can't remember so she started opening these boxes and organizing them and putting them on a spreadsheet she's organized and technically gifted so i'm not <laughs> and uh she started saying do you know what you have you had these are, there's some amazing stuff in here i said well it was all cheap when i was you know you go back to those times i mean an expensive book was twelve dollars you know that yeah. was expensive <laughs> Um, but most books were just a couple of bucks and you, you know, or, or you could buy a stack of them or whatever. And so she started putting them in order. And then I found that it started to drive her nuts. I'd miss one here or there. And she started ordering these books. So it worked out. It infected her. Uh, she had to complete the. Yeah. Run. And then yeah. she found. Good woman. Good uh, woman. She found a love. Uh, I had a lots of everything. And I had some kind of romance comics in there because of the artists who were doing it, like, uh, Steranko, Wynn Mortimer, people like that, you know. Uh, wonderful stuff by John Romita and John Buscema. And, uh, and I got them for the art, but I only had a few. And she'd read those, and she really got into it. And that, I can't, she must have bought a thousand of those types of books now. Because she's really went from comics were just something in the house she had to deal with. <laughs> to now she's an avid collector with connections everywhere to get all these books. You know, she has, she knows more people than I do that, <laughs> and has built a pretty significant, impressive collection of romance books from, you know, the late or early fifties up to now or up till they quit doing them. Uh, so it's, it was kind of nice to see because she's more passionate about it and more organized about it than me, you know? Um, so I, I have to say I dig, I dig the infection is still there, you know, uh, because when she'd open them up and organize them, I'd get in her way and start, Oh, I'm going to read the, I like, I just did red tales of suspense. And she goes, I'm trying to organize those. And I go, no man, cap and the red skull, man, this is it. This is it. 10 pages. They could do it in 10 pages, you know? Oh yeah. That's hilarious. So it's, we were talking about uh, old horror movies, you know, the vintage stuff that, that you love. Is there yeah. anything 
current, uh, you know, anything real modern like last few years that uh, uh boy that's tough that. i i mean i find it's changed for me i think one of the my favorite horror things that has come out recently probably might not qualify as horror i think it's sheer terror horror um and uh it's the first season and and i think it's the finest of the weird if you're going to talk weird tales or lovecraftian or whatever by far light years nothing comes close is the first season of hbo's true detective oh yes. yeah and oh, that so that's horror that is pure horror and that is a it, it's existential horror what meaning the way you perceive the world is not the way the world is and things exist in it and i know they're doing this latest lovecraft thing and whatever and then eh, it's okay it's that was Lovecraft, where where you have these two very different people, and something beyond their circle of belief, their worldview is happening, and how it touches the world is incredibly awful, and it pays off by saying, "Oh, and by the way, it's not just a crazy murderer; it is this thing," and it is as superior a piece of horror that has ever been done. And that's the thing. If, if there's anything in the last 10, 20 years, it's that. And that is, if I tell people why I love Lovecraft, I say, watch the first, that eight episodes of True Detective, the first season. That's, that's it. Even though they're, they're talking about uh, Robert Chambers, uh, King in Yellow, in all honesty, there, I mean, there's, aspects of Lovecraft's personality they put in the character of Cole by Matthew McConaughey. Uh, his disdain for cold, um, this very cynical view of the world, yet this little shred of hope that he tries to bury. Um, the, the complete real world realist of his partner, Marty, who, who grounds him and and argues with him and defies him. And so it, it becomes a twofer. It, it, both of them are needed to accomplish this goal. And it ends, I think, on one of the best, best moments I've ever seen in, in television or movies, uh, when they kind of reconcile their beliefs and reconcile who they are and reconcile the world. And it's done in just a, I think the last two or three minutes are as fine a piece of writing ever done. Um, and you, it, 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 I can, I go back to that and watch that from time to time. I can't think of a better horror thing, just sheer mm. horror. Yeah. Is, is there, um, what would you say as a kid was like your go-to horror movie? Maybe something that, uh, uh for me, it was always Frankenstein. Uh. Okay. It was always Frankenstein because Frankenstein was so, as a kid, he works as a big monster, scares the hell out of you, knocks down doors, tears off arms. When you get a little older, you realize they made him that way. Mm. And you, we all would probably do the same things. <clears throat> and then you realize those movies aren't about, to me, they're not about the mayhem and the murder. and the, It's about loneliness, which mm. is the worst word. The worst word in the dictionary is not murder and blood and killing. It's lonely. It's alone. And that's what yeah. the monster is. Everyone can relate to that. So though, me you, as a kid, it was because he knocked down doors and pulled off arms. <laughs> Forgive me if uh, you've already answered this in the past, but have you seen uh, the HBO series Penny Dreadful? 
Oh, yes. Yeah, I enjoyed it a lot. I mean, my only disappointment was they didn't continue doing it. And there were things I would do differently, which I try not to do when I watch stuff. But there were things I had ready. I was ready for them to do and they didn't do. But I enjoyed I enjoyed it quite a bit. And I thought why it it will stand is it's done with a lot of respect for the creatures, uh, much like uh, Abbott and Costello meet Frankenstein. Yeah. The monsters are not the monsters are treated seriously. They're yeah. monsters, uh, though you have, you know, uh, Abbott and Costello are funny. And I think Penny Dreadful does a thing where the creatures themselves are treated with respect. The, the, the monstrousness is treated with respect. Um, so in that regard, it was very, very fun. Um, uh, I thought that, I thought that they, that they had done a pretty darn good job of kind of pulling those things into the, for an audience that wouldn't know him like, I do, you know. I grew up with Universal. Yeah, uh, they're ingrained into my DNA, and uh, you know, you wonder unless they are sitting there watching it on TCM, would they have access to it the way we did, or as I, certainly I did when it was on just television all the time. Yeah. Is there a is there a um, a book or comic as a kid that you would read <clears throat> that you feel like was your go to like horror, your go to? Sure, uh, Swamp Thing Two. Yeah, Swamp Thing Number Two with the Unmen. The Unmen are still wonderfully disturbing. It's a brilliantly written and drawn. I'm a I'm a big on the one and done standalone, and mm. uh, you can have the subplots and all that. But I didn't know anything about anything, and when I read that book, and still read that book, it still resonates with tremendous power. Mm. Um, uh, when Arcane keeps yelling at. Swamp Thing, don't you care, don't you care? And he can't speak, but he croaks out, I care. Mm -hmm. You know, meaning, don't you want to be human again? Don't you want life again? And he's obviously seducing him out of his body so he can have the body. Mm -hmm. um, but it's a powerful, powerful moment, brilliantly drawn, all done through Bernie's incredible body language composition, knowing the right shot. If there's a thing about Wrightson, it's always the right shot. It was not a close to shot, it was correct. Mm -hmm. um, much like much like Rosetta's composition, Wrightson was they're the only two that got it right every time. Right. Um, and uh, but that that's that comic I think for me too, uh, the old television series Night Gallery, um, out of the park when it's on and it's on most of the time. But when it was on, man, it worked. It it had the creepiest uh, TV soundtrack ever in Gil Malay. Um, <clears throat> who is fabulous uh, experimental composer. Um, and, he, and he really, really brought his A-game to the Night Gallery theme. I think it still has the best opening credits of any television show ever. Um, uh, and when they had a horror sequence work, and which was, like I said, most of the time, that show still, still is crazy. I mean, I can watch since Aunt Ada came to stay with the great Jeanette Nolan playing a witch, or uh, There Are No More McBains with Joel McRae. Um, God, see, they all come back to me. Uh, <laughs> Fear of Spiders with Patrick O'Neill is great. Um, uh, there's so many classic episodes of that that I go back to. Um, Return of the Sorcerer with Vincent Price and Bill Bixby, uh, yeah. adapted from a Clark Ashton Smith story. Um, I'm a big, big fan of uh, August Derleth, and they uh, they adapted a bunch of his stories. I can go back to Boris Karloff's Thriller, 
and say the return of Andrew Bentley, which has the best demon ever on television. <laughs> um, just an incredible performance uh, in that too by uh, Reggie Nalder. Um, the, the incredible Dr. Marcuson with Boris Karloff on Thriller with a young Dick York. Um, man, is that, an, that is an ending too. It is incredibly, builds and builds and builds. Man, they could do it. Um, Alfred Hitchcock presents Hour with the Jar, uh, adapted from Ray Bradbury. So they, they used to adapt. Um, back to Boris Karloff's thriller, uh, Pigeons from Hell by Robert E. Howard is as good as it gets again on television. So there's a lot of great stuff I go back to uh, that that new stuff has a long way to go to beat this stuff. And I don't know why that is, but you have terrific kind of forgotten directors like John Newland or Byron Haskin doing these things. Um, really understood film noir, really understood black and white uh, and the brevity of a situation. They don't go on and on and on. Um, they get right to it and, and are pretty amazing in that sense. Uh, there's a lot of good early television horror that I go to, like uh, Don't Be Afraid of the Dark uh, from 1973. Again, directed by the great John Newland, every, uh, who, who I just mentioned earlier. Um, uh, obviously, uh, Frankenstein, The True Story is another great one. Uh, with James Mason and Michael Sarazen. Uh, th these are fabulous to go back to. And and if there's touchstones, as and I'm not being funny, one of my all-time top five Frankensteins ever is uh, Mr. Magoo's Literary Classics. It's a half-hour adaptation of Frankenstein. And I will defy you to find a better retelling and plot switches that I wish they'd make it in that plot into a regular film. Mm. Young, uh, young Frankenstein. Uh, Gene Wilder. <laughs> well, there's, yeah, obviously that's, God, just, yeah. that's, that's <laughs> just fun. But, but if I go to those, I love ghost breakers. I love obviously young Frankenstein. I love, uh, Abbott and Costello. I, my, probably my favorite horror comedy is comedy of terrorists with Vincent Price and Peter Lorre. Um, <laughs> just because it's a wonderfully droll, dry, morbid, hysterically funny uh and boris karloff's in it so it's it's terrific there's a lot of stuff when you mention that there's a lot of stuff i think black sabbath and black sunday by mary obava is again as good as it gets um and have general general uh feel dread through them and genuine dread genuine scares that still last nightmare fuel so there's, I know I've mentioned a ton of stuff, but no, it's good. hard for me to ever pick one because you go through them. Um, oh, this, this is perfect. So I go through those things. I was saying this is perfect. Well, these are the things you said. What created Exactly. Me. Exactly. Yeah, what yeah. created me? These things. Right. And uh, to be honest, that Frankenstein, Mr. Magoo, uh, I wondered, I will show my kids anything. That one I wondered about. Really? Because the monster, the monster is voiced by... Uh, the same fellow who voiced uh, Robbie the Robot. He's a voice actor. And uh, man, does he voice it. And and uh, not often do you get people who not just yell, but scream the dialogue. And that's what I thought. That might scare my kids. He screams dialogue loud. And it's, like I said, 20, 
four minutes, 22, whatever. Um, but I remember it was spoken about because I thought, well, I'm alone in this, but that I would think, you know, people think I'm trying to be hit by saying I put it in my top five Frankensteins. But uh, there was a, actually a very nice book put out on the making of and creation of Mr. Magoo's Christmas Carol, which was used to be run all the time. Now, if you hunt it, it's still terrific. It's one of the great musicals ever made, cartoons notwithstanding. Uh, Julie Stein wrote the music for it. And so if you hunt down Mr. Magoo's A Christmas Carol, it's fabulous. And that the success of that show led to the creation of this. Uh, in fact, let me... See, I have it on hand at all times. No way, uh, there it is. Uh, the famous adventures. Of, da, 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 here we go. Uh, yeah. Um, this is wonderful. Uh, highly <laughs> recommend it. Uh, they did a bunch of episodes. But the Frankenstein one, uh, in this book they did on the making of it, they took time and, and in the back singled it out they 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 showed this uh how they did it and they hired a uh her name escapes me but she was a fabulous woman background painter and they hired her just for this one episode to do the backgrounds uh because i remember those backgrounds and uh the guy who adapted it man did he do a great job so i hopefully that's on youtube uh and i would highly recommend that just as a terrific halloween feature or in general but that one, that one, that one, I go back to. We are so just to recap for everybody. We just got an incre incredible TV list uh, right now from Kelly Jones. I'm going to recap a little bit. His go-to movie, Frankenstein. Uh, go-to comic, Wrightson's Swamp Thing. Um, a lot of TV stuff we just went through. This is for our cookbook for Kelly Jones for cloning <laughs> Kelly Jones. We're going to make sure to go ahead and do that. And if we follow this recipe correctly, we'll still put some more ingredients in it. If we follow this recipe correctly, we will eventually get to the cover for night terrors graveyard moon uh by the horror master john carpenter so you know i saw that you posted this cover um or someone posted it to your facebook and i looked yeah. at it and uh let me just read this um this book concept so it's uh written by steve niles art by uh stephen scott uh cover by kelly jones and uh it says in the not so distant future earth no longer has space for graveyards Callisto, a rocky moon of Jupiter, has become designated as the graveyard planet, but only the wealthy can afford a proper burial there. Cooper and his longtime crew prepare to transport a load of the dead, having flown this route many times over, but their routine trip to the graveyard moon is disrupted by the deception and greed, and they find themselves under the siege by the ghosts of the dead they carry. So, what a concept yeah. for a book. <laughs> well, that's um, Steve Niles. If, if I say anything about Steve Niles, what I love about Niles is he's an absolute idea machine. And I think Steve has so many good ideas that would make great books or concepts that he rejects. Uh, I find that, that if it, it, he is just overflowing with this stuff where it just starts bubbling out. And probably because he's a huge fanatic for classic horror and classic horror literature. Um, he's, he's, he's one of those guys that what you just said is how editors always would accept what he did. He could sit down and say something like that and bang it, it you know, it's a terrific book. Uh, he's the guy, if, if there was a guy I wish would write Batman all the time, it's Steve Niles. Yeah. Yeah. He did. Uh, he, he has once or twice, but 
Yeah, and I got, I was lucky enough to work with him on Gotham After Midnight. I thought he yes. was, I think I think he came up with more stuff uh, that I said, Steve, Steve, slow down. Let's just do a whole next, you know, bang. He'd go, no, and and he trusted his imagination. We'll go on. We'll do better on the next one, too. That's a hallmark of a good writer. Doug Munch used to say that, too. Yeah, don't worry. We'll do it one. We only have to do one. We'll go on and do some more stuff. Uh, and he... He was, he's the same way. I just remember him making this gigantic robot that to fight potentially a big clay face, a big something. I don't know where Steve came up with that. It was brilliant. Yeah. I wish they would do that in the movies, something like that in the movies. It was wonderful. That's another great, uh, another great book that you bring up. Gotham after midnight classic Kelly Jones, Mm -hmm. also some great Halloween reading. Um, for this cover, okay, first of all, so this cover looks amazing for Night Terror's Graveyard Moon. Uh, I mean, you're perfectly encapsulating the uh, the story in that one cover. It's off, it's space. It's, it's, I mean, uh, it's, I don't, I don't know what to call them, but uh, it looks like the spirits of the dead, these uh, zombie-looking creatures yeah. eating an astronaut. My son's obsessed with astronauts right now, and he really is into Halloween, so I'm going to show him this cover and see what he thinks of it. He's going <laughs> to go bonkers over it. It's amazing. Well, so, it, for, me, it was, it, for me, it was just channeling. Try, if I was in 1952 uh, getting to do an EC cover, and I was just thinking EC, you know? Amazing. Uh, it seemed like a good kind of pulpy EC idea, too. Yeah. Uh, you have social commentary with really good gore. Um, and uh, and I was thinking, and you know, EC had all those great science fiction titles and horror titles, and just kind of mashing them up. This is something like you know, I I don't have any tattoos, and I've always wrapped my head around like you know, if I ever get something, I would get this cover as like a sleeve <laughs> or like on my forearm because it is such a badass image of space, Thanks. the moon. You see, you know, the astronaut getting eaten alive. A uh, beautiful. Um, uh, thank you. I look. I love doing those kind of pieces because there's no superhero. There's no identity. Yeah. It's just an image. It's just an idea, and it's just an image. And can you make someone attracted to that? Uh, I'm having a harder time as 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 the industry changes of telling artists apart from one another because there seems to be a homogenization of style and yeah. what works as covers. At now, they all yeah. start running together, and mm-hmm. so. I'm kind of choosy about what I get to do now on that. And that was a, that was a consideration was that here's a book. Uh, it doesn't have things that lend itself to, you know, it's going to have to be on that image. It's going to have to be, does this thing work separate from the book? Does it work on its own? Would it be something you, you know, just a cool thing on its own. And uh, the idea Steve had of what you just said lent itself beautifully to it. Um, on your Facebook, someone, I think, I think it was you who also shared an image of John Carpenter signing uh, yeah. these books. How yeah. awesome is that? Well, I've been lucky. He wrote a foreword to a book of mine, uh, Gotham After Midnight. He wrote a, a foreword to it, how much he liked it. And um, so I didn't know, you know, when this was going on, I, I didn't know that was going to be the case. You know, I knew he, his involvement. Uh, I knew it was his company. I didn't know that it would go that far. And and let me tell you, for someone who, uh, you talk about go-to films, I just finished watching, you know, tonight it's going to be The Fog, um, mm-hmm. and uh, which is one of my all-time favorite films. I, I just love The Fog. That that one works. As years get going down, I give him more credit for what a terrific 
ghost revenge story that is. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and I actually watch it more than Halloween and stuff like that is, is the, you know, that's how you find great stuff isn't, you know, what they say about it or it's pedigree. It's how many times do you watch it? Mm-hmm. Uh, but I really love the fog. I love, though he only produced it. I love Halloween three. Um, mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. the fact that he, that he had the balls to put that out and say, we're not going to do Michael Myers. And, you know, they paid for it, but look years later, it's, it's one of those classics mm-hmm. now. And it, it's uh, so, uh, you know, beyond just uh, his, I think the best horror film, not just of the 80s, but probably from 1980 till now is The Thing. So, mm, yeah. Um, but followed closely probably by Prince of Darkness, which still creeps me out. <laughs> I mean, that one really gets one. under my skin. <clears throat> uh, that, one, that one really gets under my skin. It still works. So, uh, he, but he's such an original voice. And, um, and so for him to sign a cover of anything I did is, you know, bizarre it's like uh when i got to know len ween pretty well and bernie wrightson pretty well it's bizarre because i'm still that 10 12 year old reading their swamp thing book you know yeah yeah and it's 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 you know it's uh, really it's kind of like uh, amazing for us as fans because we're getting this mix of our favorite kind of you know collaborators coming together and making stuff that's amazing and uh that book looks awesome so i really i'm gonna grab it i highly suggest everyone else does i mean it looks terrific look when they sent me the pdf of it i thought you know to do the cover i thought it was a terrific book i thought as as steve does he pulls rabbits out of a hat but everybody on it was great the art was terrific really terrific and uh the 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 concept was terrific genuinely genuinely a scary comic right did you read john's uh, joker comic that he did last year yeah that was a lot of fun um uh i wish they'd let him do more exactly that's what i was gonna follow up with yeah yeah they they seem to be um you know because dc comics is kind of in a weird place right now but they have they have been letting, um, you know, uh, television, TV, and movie writers kind of dabble a little bit. Um, and I, well, they I always, they've always, yeah, they've always kind of touched on that. I know that they were trying, to, like, uh, fifteen years ago, they were working trying to get John Landis to write a Batman werewolf story. Yeah, I would have loved that, and they got very close to that. So, uh, and and they've done that for a while. I mean, uh, they used to let. Uh, Harlan Ellison come in and write some stuff occasionally in the old days, you know? Um, so there's always been that uh, a thing that DC would do that. Uh, and you're right. They're in a weird transitional place right now. Um, but, you know, I think, I think you can tell that when they moved from New York, the traditional publishing Mecca to LA to the TV and film that, that was going to be an obvious influence, you know? Um, speaking of covers, speaking of amazing covers that you're working on, um, you've also been sharing some of the, uh, Sandman covers, um, that are now being used for, uh, Sandman lock and key that crossover and, um, okay. Sandman plunging, plunging into the gates of hell, um, as an image is absolutely amazing. So, um, can you tell us a little bit about, because I know that yeah, you... Yeah, actually, I probably should. They are not created now. They were not... Right, right. Uh, there was nothing now. And I didn't know what the stories were when when uh, I talked to Chris Royale, who mm-hmm. called and asked if I would do those. Um, he didn't say. He just said, hey, you know what? Just create whatever you want. Do whatever you want. Oh, my God. Want. And huh. I had these... When I was on Sandman, 
uh, I had done a couple of fill-ins and they said, hey, uh, Neil called and said, my magnum opus for Sandman will be Seasons of Mist. No matter how long I do it afterwards, these are the stories that everything will pivot from. Everything comes from, this is, these are the anchor foundation stories. And I'd like you to do them. I said, okay, fine. And mind you, they weren't, it wasn't the book it's become. It was, it had a cult status, but its sales exploded, I think, with the cat issue. I remember that, the, the Dream of a Thousand Cats and then um, uh, Midsummer's Night Dream. Those two, I remember that, DC telling me that. And in seasons, during those issues of Seasons of Mist, it was selling X-Men-like numbers. I mean, it was doing phenomenal because it just went from this cult thing to this exploding thing. The problem was Neil had gotten really far behind. He had had a terrible writer's block situation. In fact, one of the stories I was to do, Calliope, was supposed to be called Sex and Violins, and he just couldn't come up with it. And so he wrote uh, Calliope based on his own writer's block, and then everything broke open from there. Well, anyway, long story short, it got later and later and later. And when we were, when he sent me the thing four seasons, it was just on a sheet of paper. It was just an outline on a sheet of paper. It wasn't fully formed. It hadn't even been decided. So I read it over, he told me, and we would discuss it back and forth. And at that time, Dave McKean was doing the covers. It wasn't like they said, Dave will do all the covers. It's just, he was doing the covers. And it was getting so late and there wasn't stuff for Dave to get the idea, what's the issue about, that they were worried they weren't going to be able to have him do covers for solicitation. So I, they had asked me, can you just leave, put some, at least put some sketches together? And uh, I said, sure. I thumbnailed them and sent them off. They said, and these will be fine for these upcoming issues. But we still hadn't worked them out. And uh, we would discuss it a lot. And initially he said, well, he's going to go to hell and uh, rescue Nuala. And there's all this stuff going, you know, all, all this stuff going on. And uh, at that point, we had it in our head, you know, how do you do that? And I had told him offhandedly, because, you know, Sandman's all by himself against Lucifer would be enough, but the hordes of hell are unstoppable only heaven's army could deal with it so what can he do and he was and he was going back and forth with me on that and i said you know what i think there's an army that we're not realizing and that's all the nightmares he has overseen since humanity dreamed mm. would still be there hmm. and those could defeat demons wow that and neil jumped on that he said that's a good idea let's file that away and then we'll move on to the next thing. I think the only thing that would trump it was what he came up with. And that was, eh, Lucifer retired and let everyone out, you know, and it's an empty place. And, and the fact that it was, uh, Neil's favorite trick used to be set you up for one thing, give you something that you didn't expect. And one yeah. was an empty hell, which created a lot of tension. And at first, I wasn't disappointed at all. I thought, oh man, that's great. Also, I didn't have to draw 5,000 guys against 5,000 guys. <laughs> on the page. Um, so when that happened, uh, 
I thought, yeah, that's creepy. And, and Neil said to me, he says, and Kelly, don't you think that a lot of tension until you get to the end? Because you're going, are they all going to jump out of the holes? Are they going to come flying out of the sky? Uh, what's going to happen? And then you turn it out where he's just tired of being in hell. Lucifer's just tired of it. Go do what you want. And I'm, I'm checking out. Um, which made better stories and was less contrived, I think, in, in retrospect. But... That still didn't mean I didn't have these sketches that I was really pleased with <laughs> sitting right. there. <laughs> and it turned out that Neil was able to pass it on very easily to, to, to Dave and life went on and everything's okay. Um, but those have sat in a, some sketchbooks and files for 30 years. Wow. 31 years. Wow. Uh, and I always remembered those, the, the covers that I did for him, those, that's why I did them. I always remembered them saying, I think those are pretty good. I think those would have been pretty, pretty eye catching. At least they would, and, and indicative of what you're going to get inside mm -hmm. um, and very different. So uh, I thank you for that because like I said about Nosferatu, a good idea should last over time, like Shakespeare or something. It right. doesn't matter how long ago it is if it's good it's good and these those came out pretty powerful to me so there's i'm looking at two of them that are on your facebook page how many total did you do uh there were three or four other sketches oh, as i remember yeah um of, for them and i and actually because it's a crossover to the seasons of miss storyline or whatever I didn't want to create something new if I didn't have to. I wanted to go, you know, I was lucky that I had these in a way because right. they go back to that time. They're, they're created with that in mind, not looking back, not trying to take the same old ground, doing so. It's new, but it was of that time. And it's a direction that wasn't taken, but it kind of works for what they're doing, you know? Yeah. And, and, it's, and it is something, you know, I haven't, I've done nothing with Sandman since that time so it was kind of cool to touch back on those days it, they look absolutely phenomenal and then Thank you know both there's the black and white version and then now that there's a colored version up there too yeah um they just look just ridiculous how how long would you say i mean the the one that i'm looking at right now i'm looking let me scroll up to it um the one where he's at the gates of hell and it's about i can't even count how many things you got on this it's insane um <laughs> it's it looks like it's for issue number two um Oh my God. I mean, I can't even count. There's, there's so many like demons and things. How long does, how long does it take um, after you sketch it out and you sit down and you put yeah. all the details? What, how long does something like this take you? Well, in the old days, it would have taken me a long, long time because the, the idea was hard to do. And then, so the drawing kind of lags behind what idea is going to be, but now the ideas come they're, they're there. This luckily I had the idea already done. But it took a while. I mean, that took a couple, probably two days of full out all day long work. Um, and at that point, uh, it kind of starts drawn itself too. I think uh, on the second one in particular, uh, it's layered. You know, you have these things in front, then Sandman, then the creatures behind him. So it starts layering itself and the contrasts start taking shape because when I draw them, it's fairly unremarkable. There's very little drawing, generally just indicating where the, where the, the, the outlines of figures and whatnot, because I go into it thinking 
it comes to life when you put the ink to it, you know, the, as, as uh, Dracula says, the blood is the life to me, the ink is the life. <laughs> and uh, however good a great pencil drawing is, that's not really what they print. It's, it's the ink that <laughs> is comics. That's, that's comics. And I don't want to be an illustrator. I want to be a comic book artist. So I want those blacks really black. I want those, those, textures to be comic book textures uh, i'm not into illustrator stuff um mm -hmm. tends to be too realistic i want the my version of realism not real realism yeah so and and that makes an image like you said that people remember i think stronger i don't want advertising art i want comic book art and that's starting to be rare but i want comic book art and uh when it's done well nothing nothing in the world like it yeah your style is just so perfect for, you know, these types of stories. Um, these pieces are amazing. And to, and to know that they were kind of tucked away for a bit and now they're coming back and finally to be enjoyed is, is even more awesome. And um, you also have a cover for the Jeff Lemire series, yeah. uh, Black Hammer that you have up here uh, as well. Again, like I'm looking at this stuff and I'm like, Jesus Christ, man, like, you're just hitting home runs left and right constantly. Well, thank you. Thank you very much. I, I was very pleased uh, that uh, Jeff asked me to, you know, they asked that I would do a cover for it. And, um, and the nice thing comes out of it is you do something like that. And then Jeff got a hold of me and says, Hey, maybe we can do something together. Cause this is, this is really a beautiful piece. And I, yeah. I truly appreciated him saying that. Um, it's hard when you come into something and you're not, you know, if you work on something, that will happen. Uh, but very, uh, Daniel Shaban, the editor said, Kelly, just draw whatever you want. Here's the story, but draw whatever you want. And so I took elements of what was in there and kind of did a, a symbolic version of what was going on. And, uh, and again, just very fortunate. Those things come together. Uh, if I'm given enough latitude, organic, magical little things start to happen that are beyond me. I mean, I just, I sit there and I, I go, wow, this is all coming together. Um, and uh, and it will make a striking image. But then again, like I said, I'm going for a comic book art. I'm not trying to illustrate. I'm not trying to be a commercial in that sense. I'm trying to make something visceral and big swaths of ink do that. Yeah. This, this Black Hammer cover, um, I would say, is probably a great example of it. The the kind of the lighting effect that you're doing off of this moon yeah. and how it's kind of um, blanketing over the piece. And then, uh, you know, I mean, you can't go wrong if you get a, a graveyard image from Kelly Jones. So graveyard, tombstone, scary trees, man, like this is, I got everything that you need on it. I was, I, it's funny you say that. Um, Greg Nicotero's creep show I did, the intro, the titles for that. And I didn't know they were going to use them for the titles. And I didn't even know what they were going to use them for. Uh, he just said, can you do a graveyard? Can you do a zombie guy? Can, just draw stuff for me. And he would give these very loose things and I would draw them because I came late to the game. They couldn't find me. And they would at, they had asked when I got there, could you illustrate a couple of these episodes, do the illustrations for it? Because uh, initially they, had, uh, they couldn't find me uh, until finally through DC. And at one point he, he got a hold of me and says, by the way, can you just do these images? And uh, one of them was of a graveyard. And I had no idea what he was talking about, but he told me later that they took them to the network. The network loved them. And then they took them to a uh, 
the people are separate from the people who made Creepshow made the, the opening titles and used those images for the opening titles. I had no idea what they were going to be for. I had no idea what, what was up. So it's nice to hear someone say you like, you can draw a good graveyard because you think <laughs> that, you know, uh, how weird is it that doing that people would respond to it? Um, it's not, it's not a figure. It's not a good girl art or something. It's just old tombs and twisted trees. Right. But it, it, it's something that can be hard to pull off. Like it, you see a lot of people attempt things like that and it can come out cheesy or hokey. Yeah. Uh, but uh, yeah, it takes the right person to, to do that and do well, it. Well, you have to be afraid of it. See, I'm afraid of those things. I'm a big coward. I think the best horror artists are big cowards. Wrightson told me he couldn't stand gore. Mm. You know, I was the same way. Uh, it, it, I, 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 watched a lot of horror films to be mistaken or a lot of scary stuff on tv like i said like this you know so i was i was easily affected by these things i wasn't like sitting around going <laughs> i'm like going oh my god that's awful i saw alien when it opened the opening night and did not watch it again out of absolute visceral terror until i had to draw hive for dark horse yeah. And then I knew I had to go back and look at it. Yeah. <laughs> and it so affected me. And one of the kindest, best things ever said was uh, one of the representatives for H.R. Geiger got a hold of me and said, I want you to know, uh, it was around the time he passed. He says, I want you to know that uh, Geiger was aware of a lot of the stuff. And he says, but he really held yours out as one. He doesn't know names or anything. He just held yours out as one that got it, that understood what he was doing. And I'm thinking, God, I didn't really look at it. You know, I was like this most of the time, you know, watching it. It was so nightmarish. But what he understood was I, 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 as I understood it, how dark I did, I didn't worry about the details on an alien. I worried about the overall shape and the silhouette of an alien. Because I tend to think that way with Batman. I'm not really looking at him. I'm seeing him in the distance. I'm seeing him in the room in a dark room. I'm not conscious of the details. I'm conscious of the threat of this shape of this figure. Mm. And that's how I did. That's how I did high. So it was very kind to hear that come back of how much he enjoyed it. I've been lucky in that sense that a lot of these people uh, who I admire will come back and they don't say they like it for the reasons people like it. They like it for this idea thing. And that's really what I am. I'm more of an idea guy than a technical artist. I'm, I'm not gifted in, in that arena too well, um, because I'm not interested in it, to be honest. Mm. I'm, I'm more interested in the shock, uh, the building to the release panel, the can I build tension, can I create atmosphere? Um, the rest I just figured it'll take care of itself. Yeah. Uh, and, and I think that's where, if these covers or these images work for you, it's probably because I still adhere to that. And it's probably why my stuff, at least in my opinion, isn't dated that way because it's still drawn as pure com if 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 it is it's purely because i stay in a i want comic a comic look a comic art look yeah. because i believe in the purity of it yeah um because as i said earlier i was, I was aping a ec cover because those guys still work for me i mean i look at it they could be doing it now and it works for me um uh so that's that's my shtick if it were, is is purity of the form. Uh, not in some noble sense, but I just think it works best. 
Yeah. And I think it translates so well, especially with your work, because um, horror and fear, like fear are timeless. You can't yep. put, you know, people are always going to be fearful or afraid of something. And what's the first emotion, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. The first emotion is fear because you don't survive to love unless you're alive. So fear is the first emotion. Absolutely. <laughs> Uh, did you did you eventually get over your fear of aliens and uh, were you able to enjoy any of the sequels? Yeah, it, 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 it's funny because <laughs> I remember seeing it in 1979 with, with a buddy of mine. We went to go see it and we were just, I think I went there as naively thinking, oh, you know, Star Wars and Close Encounter, <laughs> aliens and things. And it's called Aliens, so they're going to meet an alien. Yeah. You knew, you knew within three minutes oh my god <laughs> now, I, I, now i'm stuck and i'm a horror guy right i love horror so but i was sitting next to probably what it was i was sitting next to uh he was a football player he had the he had the jersey on a high school i was in a high, a high school football player and he was big dude so he must have been a lineman and he was with his girlfriend this incredibly pretty little tiny slip of a thing and through the movie he's freaking out like i'm freaking out although i'm quieter he's jumping (laughs) shaking the aisle and she's soothing him it's a movie it's Mm. a movie (laughs) i can remember saying it's a guy in a suit there's not a real thing there it's this little tiny high school girl (laughs) and it shamed me so it's probably the power of geiger's image the brilliance of ridley scott that making you think dallas is going to be the hero but it's it's uh ripley going to be the hero um all the all the misdirection the great imagery the the it, the great score by goldsmith but it there's also this girl shaming all of us <laughs> you know, the movie you know um then i walked out and uh i couldn't wa- i mean just the idea of it even the knockoffs of alien <clears throat> because I was right back to that nightmare image all through the Geiger. Um, so when Barbara Kiesel, who had been my editor, first editor at DC on Dead Man, had said, I have three stories uh, here. I, you're going to draw one for, of these for me, so I'm going to send them to you pick. And the one I chose was Hive because I thought it was the most character-driven. And the monsters were in the background. And then when they came out, they were they, they threatened and were filled with dread. So um, at that point, that was the story for me. It didn't have action guys. It didn't have Marines. It didn't have any of that. It was just this old guy hoping this young girl loved him. And we were, it's very ambiguous. Uh, they're there taking advantage of his ability to create robotics to get the Royal jelly because the girl is basically kind of a dubious character. I mean, there's all this great stuff. And, and then there's monsters. Mm. Yeah. And, uh, and I thought that story had the best chance of being successful for me and the best chance of maybe having a life beyond its publication date. <laughs> Um, mm-hmm. And uh, like I said, it was just absolute gravy to have a guy out of the blue get a hold of me and tell me, you know, I've been lucky. I've had I had someone, uh, Mobius's agent, tell me I did a piece for Mobius on Arzac, say something similar, like I, I, he and I thought alike, and I go, no, we don't think alike. <laughs> but I appreciate the comment because he really enjoyed an Arzac piece I did, and uh, Geiger saying very complimentary things. No, I'm not at all in that league, but. I'm glad he he got you know I just used my ideas to try to em- empl- emphasize his imagery and 
And that's all I could do. I couldn't compete with it. Um, I've been lucky in that if I have had a career that's been successful beyond any kind of commercial thing, is it solved those kind of problems where, you know, if they give you dead man to do, you have to be in the long, or Batman for that matter. You're in the very, very long, impressive, imposing shadow of Neil Adams. Um, to this day, I think you, a lot of people are measured by the, the, and he, due to his realism, brilliantly done, comic book realism, he, he's genius. And to have Neil Adams come up to me and say, you know, basically paraphrasing here, but you solved me, you're dead man. I should have thought, I mean, Wrightson had told me that too. They weren't talking about the technical skill. They weren't saying how well you draw or you did this thing like Alex Ross. What they said was that idea is right on the money. Definitely. And that's, that's what it comes, that then I feel something then. Uh, if the wind's at my back, it's on that. It's not, I'm not, no one come to me to learn how to draw, but I could teach how to think. Yeah. And, uh, and dead man was out of desperation because great artists were doing dead man that were becoming forgettable as good as Jose Garcia Lopez is it's everyone's still talking to Neil Adams. And I went, well, I'll never be as good as Jose Garcia Lopez. So it's gotta be <laughs> some other angle. Uh, same with Batman. When it came to Batman, I would look at it and go, well, I can't do that. You know, and everyone's measured by that. Everyone then seriously was measured by that. So I had to come up with something different and it became the cape and the cowl. It became the shape. It became the, the, the uh, film noir attitude towards it uh, uh, with these, with that idea. So those things would work. Um, I found as time goes on, those things work. Uh, the idea. And if you can have a powerful idea, you're forgiven a lot of bad drawing, frankly. <laughs> <laughs> I love that, um, you know, you're talking very at the very beginning, we talked about the scariest uh, memory you had as a kid. And it was the it was a real bird yeah. that your perception and understanding of it wasn't there. I mean, it was real, but you you interpreted it as something different. And that's what scared you. Yeah. It's kind of like, that is what you do with your characters, specifically Batman, where, you know, a guy in an alley who is mugging somebody gets attacked by this creature in the night and right. they turn up and they look and they see something that's very real. They see something that is physically there, but they mm -hmm. are so petrified with fear that they envision this demon that they don't know what it could be. And they run back and they tell their buddies what they just saw. And everyone's looking at them like, what are you talking about, man? Yeah. And uh, that is kind of like, that is what your art embodies is it takes the realistic nature of something, but then it injects your perceived fear and emotion into what you're seeing. And it's that, that's what you see in your mind. And that's what is projected in reality. And um, that's, that's why, that's why I think, you know, you're so beloved by everybody is you have the ability to put that on paper, that emotion, that feeling. Well, I, I don't know how to scare someone, but I know what it's like to be scared. There you go. That's a, yeah. <laughs> okay. So, so, uh, and for me, I always then, like I said, it's the idea. So I, 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 when I got Batman to do, I started trying to figure out how to do this. Uh, and a lot of artists, I think, take the tack of I'll, you know, how to do the, the, again, the technical things. And I started thinking in terms of what if I lived in Gotham, I wouldn't know anything about this guy there's a lot of crazy people running around who dress up and he's just one of them. Yeah. I don't know. He's a good guy. Right. I think, he's yeah. just, I think he's just the best of he's the top predator of a bunch of criminal predators. I think he's a criminal. 
He doesn't come out and save the day. And when they do the bat signal, he's such a bad dude that there's no Joker signal. There's no penguin signal, but he's so bad. They put out a bat signal. <laughs> and they Bam. say when that light's lit, he's loose. And the Gotham police can't stop him. Yeah. Well, and even to on top of that, how badass it is. He's such a bad dude that the bad signal is located on top of the police department. And and the fact that he's <laughs> never had to do time in Arkham Asylum. Nope. Everybody else has. And if he fights them, if you happen to see where they say, oh, he's fighting the Joker or Mr. Freeze or something, it's over turf. And, yeah. and okay, so I always took it that then why would Gordon, the most upstanding, perfect cop, shining moral ethical guy break every single constitutional law to work with him right well mm -hmm. it's because when gotham i would think well when the gotham police arrest a regular guy probably nine times out of ten he goes back out and does it again but when batman says stop never again do i want to see you or even less just stop I would think the reverse happens and it's probably 99% don't do it again because yeah. they don't know what he is. They don't know what he means. They have no idea. It's all my fears now of what he does. Yeah. So well, I would, ben, if I was, a, if I was a henchman of the Joker, I would say, you know, the Joker is bothersome, but that dude. <laughs> and that's what I started thinking. So I had to think that's the image he has to be. Plus the, um, you know, I'm sure they, I'm sure the henchmen talk to each other and they don't want to end up like, you know, the guy that broke both legs. No, I just, uh, about, a year, <laughs> about a year or so ago, I did, um, I was saying that to the writer of Kings of Fear was Scott Peterson was the writer, who was an old editor of mine. And I said these things to him and uh, he wonderfully wove in towards the end of the story. It's uh, obviously people say, you know, how many times can you do, why does he do it? And is he the reason? Well, I thought those have been said, but they had never said it the way I had perceived it. And I had mentioned that to him and he threw in this great thing about a gal who works as a, some kind of receptionist or whatever at Arkham. And she says to Batman, you may not remember me or, or this name. And she mentions a name, obviously Batman does. And how he still wakes up screaming over Batman and he apologizes. And she says, no, 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 no. You changed his life. He was working for the Riddler or something. He was uh, doing bad things. Uh, you told him, turn himself in. You didn't even arrest him, drag him off. You just said, turn yourself in and never do this again. And he did, did his time, changed his life, married her, had a kid, has a, a, a nice little business going and is genuinely happy. And she goes, so that's why I'm grateful to you. And that's why he does what he does. It, it's, On, um... It's the regular people. It's yeah. never been the villains. It's the regular people. I frankly get tired of all the villains uh, if you don't have it measured against the reality of that world he lives in. Gotham is his adversary. It's not these villains. It's Gotham. Gotham creates these things. The thing Gotham did, it was a city built bad, as Shirley Jackson said. And it's a city built bad that that attracts, creates, and nurtures this. But it also has one little, like out of Pandora's box, the last thing out of it was the smallest thing, and it was hope, and that in Gotham was Batman. 
and it took all of the things that Gotham tried to per per perpetrate and put it into a physical being that actually is leading the, these people out of this. That's what it always was to me. So these other villains are interesting in, in and of themselves, but they're not the scariest thing by far. It's the city. I mean, the city makes people that way, everybody that way, wow. to their yeah. gifts, to their gifts. And the only one seeming resistant to it was Batman. Mm. Hmm. Well, yeah, I mean, we love your take on it. And that's <laughs> the, the way that you yeah. kind of create these interpretations is, is just, you know, it's, it's one of our favorites. Well, I don't think it's essential that people know it. It's, I mean, if they know it, that's, that's great. I always figured, though, it affects my drawing. And that's where, that's where it worked. Yeah. Great. I mean, it's you're one of the best. One of the best. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Can't say much more um, that. We want to be respectful of your time. You know, we've had you for a bit. Um, thank you so much again, Kelly, for coming on. Oh, is there anything absolutely. else? Is there anything missing in our recipe? Anything that you think that we need to add in uh, to the DNA of Kelly Jones that we haven't covered real quick to make sure that we can clone you? <laughs> maybe uh, a maybe a sprinkle of Bella Dugosi and um, you know yeah. some. <laughs> well, for me, it's always, it's, it, it, for me, it's always the character actors, right? It, it would be, uh, I love all the character actors in, in the Universal film, seeing Dwight Fry over and over and Lionel Atwell over and over. Um, uh, same thing with the Hammer films. I always liked the, the secondary guys all had to be in it. Uh, uh, the, the, if there's a sprinkle of that, I'm a big uh, Elisha Cook fan, you know? Um, these odd little eccentric people, which is how I pretty much perceive myself in comics. I'm not one of the guys that, you know, they're going to talk about like that, but I'm, I'm the Elisha Cook of, of these things. I'm, the, I'm, <laughs> I'm the, the Dwight Fry. They'll remember that laugh, you know? Um, and, I, and I'm good with that. That's, that's probably where I, I belong anyway. I think you're shortchanging yourself, sir. Um, you're definitely on uh, our... Uh... Um, Mount Rushmore for sure. Mount Rushmore. So, Mount Rushmore oh, yeah. of thank Batman. You. So, um, again, thank yes, you so sir. much, Kelly. Thank you for your time. Oh, yeah. We hope you have a very happy Halloween. I will. Um, very safe Halloween. And uh, if you'd like, let's just keep this tradition going sure. and having you back for our Halloween special. We really pencil appreciate it. in. I penciled right. it in. <laughs> well, thank you so much, Kelly. Okay. Thank you. All have right. a good one. Thanks. Have, have a great day. Thanks. Thank you very much. Thank you. Take care.